When he was a teenager, Eric Deggins read a lot of movie reviews by Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert. He tended to have the same taste as Ebert, but it was Siskel's reviews that showed him what was going on in a movie, and he could decide what he thought, even if he disagreed with Siskel's take. That's a good critic. And that's what he aspires to as NPR's TV critic and media analyst. This week, Eric Deggins on The Life of the Critic. Then, comedian Sarah Schaefer answers the question, Sarah Schaefer, what have you done? That's all coming up after this. It's Interstates, I'm Alex Chambers, and both guests on this week's show have figured something out about saying the hard truth. Later on, we'll hear from comedian Sarah Schaefer, who's got some things to say about sexism in the comedy world. But first, we've got NPR's TV critic and media analyst, Eric Deggins. I'll be talking with Deggins on stage, by the way, this Wednesday at the Indiana University Cinema. So if you're in the area, come join us. We'll talk about the writer's strike, the future of media, and what to watch. For this week's episode, we talked about why good critics are also good journalists and the responsibilities Deggins feels as a critic. But we started with his origins. I mean, how many 14-year-olds do you know who are like, oh yeah, I want to be a critic when I grow up? I remember very clearly sitting down with myself when I was in eighth grade and trying to decide where I was going to focus myself because I grew up in Gary, Indiana and you know my mother was a teacher and you know I, I had a decent standard of living but I lived in a pretty tough neighborhood and I lived in a city where sometimes people didn't get out of that city and I was determined that wasn't going to happen to me so I had to decide what was I going to focus on and um, you know I was pretty good at writing and I was pretty good at um, music. I was learning how to play drums at the time, and I would eventually become a professional drummer in Bloomington. And then, uh, and and uh, you know, I was okay at art. I could draw, but that was my weaker thing. So I figured, where could I find a job where my abilities as a musician and my abilities as a writer could come together? And I figured I would become a pop music critic for a newspaper. And so uh, I decided probably from freshman or sophomore year in high school, that I would aim myself at that. And so, you know, I read every publication that did that kind of work that I can think of, you know, Rolling Stone, even Playboy, and the New York Times, and the Chicago Tribune, and the Sun Times, and all that kind of stuff. And really sort of pursued on two tracks, you know, getting better as a musician, but also learning a lot about writing about music and being a music journalist. And when I came to Bloomington, you know, I, I kept that up. And even I, I told you before we started this, I was in a band called the Voyage Band that was popular in the 80s and we got signed to Motown. And so I experienced what it was like to be a major label recording artist with a label that wasn't all that interested in you. <laughs> and so, so when that ride ended, I felt like I had the equipment to actually be a pop music critic because I would understand what musicians went through to create albums, to create tours, to, to live that life because I had lived it. And so I did that for years at uh, newspapers in Pittsburgh and New Jersey and then finally in St. Petersburg, Florida. 
And I just realized at a certain point that it is hard to stay relevant and effective as a pop music critic when you get older, because so much of that is is a young person's game. And I, I found I was judging young music acts because I would hear them and I could instantly hear every band that they were influenced by. And I wasn't giving them a fair shake on their own merits. And then combine that with the time I was realizing this, the, the pop music that was popular at the time was like Britney Spears and Christina Aguilera and NSYNC and, and Backstreet Boys and stuff like that. Stuff I didn't really like. I didn't understand why fans liked that music. <laughs> it was hard for me to write about because I didn't really get it. And so eventually I just decided, you know, I want to be an arts critic. I want to have a national voice, but I don't want to write about pop music anymore. What could I do? And I had covered for the TV critic at the St. Petersburg Times, which is where I was working at the time, for a couple of times. And that TV critic wound up taking a job in Philadelphia as a columnist. So she left the paper and that job was open. And I thought, you know, where's the one place in arts where everything happens? And that's television. You know, if you want to write about gender, if you want to write about politics, if you want to write about race, if you want to write about social issues, if you want to write about history, whatever you want to write about, there's some place on television where it's happening and you can talk about it in a review or a trend piece or a feature story or whatever. So this has kind of been your world since you were like 14. Well, the idea of being an arts critic with a national voice started then. I feel like that's unusual for a 14 year old. Well, you know, like I said, you got to be you got to be focused, man. And I realized that the only way I was going to get out of my neighborhood in Gary and really make an impact was by making sure I took advantage of every opportunity that came my way. And the only way to do that was to be was to be focused, was to have goals and to know what you were good at and what you're not good at and capitalize on what you're good at. I took a brief detour to see if being a professional musician would work. And for me, it didn't. And then I went back. Um, I, I had this amazing, you know, sort of period of time. I think it was a week. Uh, now I'm remembering it as a weekend. Um, uh, you know, somebody out there might remember it differently. But, you know, the, the band that got signed to Motown, we, uh, I wound up playing two months in Japan with them. And I did my last three credits at Indiana University by correspondence at the same time. So I would have my degree pretty much in the bag when I got back from Japan. So we played in Japan in January and February. I come back and I keep working with the band. We played Bloomington South's prom. Uh, I think it was a sat Friday or Saturday night. Um, there was the graduation ceremony for the journalism school at Indiana University on a Sunday. And um, Jane Pauley was the commencement speaker. And then I threw all my stuff in a U-Haul and I drove to Pittsburgh and I started my job as a reporter for the Pittsburgh Press that Monday. You know, so, so over a weekend, you know, I sort of transitioned from being a musician uh, to being a journalist and, and I had goals. So decisions were made for me uh, without me having really to, to think about it much. So uh, it may sound, uh, you know, like I was really self-possessed or something, but for me, it was just a way to focus and to make a lot of decisions without having to make decisions. Oh, that's interesting. I'm curious to hear about the relationship between being a critic, where you're thinking about 
aesthetics and style and things like that, and being a reporter. How do you think about the relationship between those two jobs? Yeah, I actually think the best critics are also uh, good reporters because what you're really trying to do is deliver an informed opinion about something. And nothing will invalidate um, a uh, critique in a reader or an audience member's mind faster than if you get something wrong that they know. That's why it's always hard to, to review stuff that 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 has really intense and detailed fan bases you know reviewing a star wars tv show or movie reviewing something in the star trek world reviewing something from lord of the rings you know if you're not extremely conversant with those fandoms and what they expect um it's easy to make a mistake that makes you know them all go well you don't know what you're talking about you know and they forget that these movies are not just made for them. <laughs> they're made for, they're, they're, they're supposed to be entertaining to anybody and everybody. When I was coming up as a critic, when I was an intern, one of the first things I covered was a shooting in Pittsburgh. I was going to review a concert with, oh, you can't touch this, so MC Hammer, with MC Hammer, Guy and New Edition. It was a package tour. And Guy and New Edition had been feuding the whole time. And um, their support staff, their roadies, got into a fight as they were setting up um, the show in Pittsburgh. And somebody from one of the acts, support staff, shot and killed somebody from the support staff from, from, from the other artist. I think it was somebody from Guy who shot and killed the production manager for New Edition. I think that's what happened. Um, and, and so I had to instantly become more of a news reporter and I helped the police reporter. The police reporter covered what happened that day. And I found out that they had been feuding the night before and had gotten into a fight on stage in South Carolina before they came to Pittsburgh. And I reported all that out. And, and my story was about that. And so from the very beginning, when I was even an intern, I was mixing reporting with, you know, uh, reviewing concerts and, and doing feature stories and and, and, and doing the kind of things that you would expect a critic to, to, to do. And, you know, so what's disappointing to me is that you can get critics who are very good at um, telling you what they think about a TV show. But, you know, when it comes to figuring out the nuts and bolts of streaming or figuring out whether or not executives are telling the truth when they fire somebody or figuring out why a certain TV show is in production and why another one's not, or why an executive is actually leaving, you know, whether what they're saying publicly is true. All that kind of stuff comes from being a journalist. So, so that's what I think we're losing in having, you know, smaller newspapers not hire critics or smaller newspapers uh, not have local people who can, you know, talk about the local actor who's starring in the CBS drama or talk about um, you know, the local, the, the way in which a, a local community may have welcomed, uh, you know, a national production to come in and, and make a film or make a TV show in their community. That's the kind of stuff that you lose when you don't have critics uh, at smaller papers. I feel like that's a really good explanation of why the reporting is really important and how those skills become a part of being a critic. What were some of the skills that were hardest to learn as a critic? One of the things is understanding that your perspective is just your perspective. And what you're trying to do 
is be is 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 make a very informed case for why you think a certain thing about a certain thing. So I always start with you know I experience the whatever the art is, whether it's a um, uh, whether it's an album or a concert or a TV show or a film, and then I ask whether or not it moved me, and then whether it did or whether it didn't, trying to explain that initial reaction is uh, where the meat of the, the heart of the review is and trying to explain it in a way that would address all the questions that an average person might have about that series. And, you know, figuring out how to discern the difference in those things takes a little bit of experience and a little bit of thought. And it's the same thing when you talk about television. Am I not digging Star Wars Ahsoka because I'm not that level of a Star Wars fan. I mean, I'm a Star Wars fan, but I didn't watch all those animated shows where Ahsoka first appeared as a character. So am I not digging this show because I'm not that level of fan? Or am I not digging this show because they didn't do a great job of making a show that the average viewer who's who's aware of Star Wars but not a super fan would enjoy? You know, they'd show a character looking at a wall uh, with a bunch of drawings on it. And you would assume, oh, you know, maybe that character did those drawings when they were younger, right? If you, if you weren't a huge fan. If you were a huge fan, you knew that character is a muralist. And one reason, and, and so it meant a, a big thing for them to be looking at drawings that they made when they were a kid, when they were living on this ship that they don't live on anymore because they, they have a rift with the person uh, who who controlled the ship? As a reviewer, you have to say, look, you know, you got to give you got to give the average average audience more than that. You can't just have somebody look wistfully at a picture on a wall and assume they're going to understand all of that. Um, for most of them, it's going to be kind of a boring moment. That was and remains one of the toughest things is to get out of my own perspective and try to be more objective about what I'm experiencing and try to talk about it in a way that I can allow. I mean, you know, one of the things I said in my review of Ahsoka was, you know, there's been several Star Wars series where the first episode or the first couple episodes were kind of slow paced. So maybe this will pick up, maybe it will get better. And that's the other thing. It's really hard to review a TV show these days just based on an episode or two because they evolve and change so much over an entire season. Back in the old days, TV series tried to pretty much show you what they were in the pilot or the first two episodes. And then once you saw them, you pretty much had a sense of what the show was going to be like. Um, but that's not how modern TV series work, especially on streaming. They evolve over the course of several episodes. And you might not really have a sense of what the show fully is until you're halfway into it or even two thirds of the way into it. And sometimes that's a process that's really rewarding. And when you finally see what the full series is, it makes sense for why the initial episodes were slow or they seemed incomplete or, um, you know, in other ways they seem kind of lacking. They're, they were kind of building a narrative and it just gained steam through the season. But sometimes they're that way because the show's just not good enough. <laughs> and so it's hard to judge when you only see two episodes, you know, what, ex what exactly is happening. So sometimes you have to figure out how to tell the audience what you don't know. You try to tell them what you think you know. And then you also try to allow for the fact that your um, responses 
that, that people might react differently and they might see the very same thing and they might have an entirely opposite reaction. I always tell the story about how um, Gene Siskel, who was a longtime movie critic for the Chicago Tribune. I grew up in Gary, so of course I, I grew up reading Chicago newspapers. And so I read Roger Ebert, who was at the Chicago Sun-Times, and I read um, Gene Siskel, who was a movie critic for the Chicago Tribune. And, you know, Roger Ebert was always more populist. He was always more forgiving of, of good films that were meant for a wide audience, like the Indiana Joneses or the Star Wars of the world. And Gene Siskel always seemed a little more intellectual and a little more snobby. And, and frankly, I usually didn't like movies that Siskel liked, and I usually liked movies that Roger Ebert liked. But I found that because Gene Siskel was such a great writer and such a great thinker, that I could read his reviews and I could figure out whether or not I wanted to see the movie, and I could figure out what I thought of the movie based on what he wrote. It didn't mean I agreed with him, but it did mean that he told me enough as a critic and gave me a good enough experience that I could judge whether or not I wanted to spend my money and waste my time on it. And that's the, the service part of the job. So that's what I hope to do is to have my ideas be sharp and strong and clear enough that even if you don't necessarily agree with me, you can figure out whether or not you want to watch what I'm talking about. And, uh, and you'll have some kind of, you'll learn something, you'll have some kind of experience. You'll, you'll, you'll come away knowing something new about what I was talking about. All right, let's take a break. I'm talking with NPR TV critic and media analyst Eric Deggins. When we come back, we'll talk about some changes in how race has functioned in media. Some of it's good news. Some of it. Stick around. Interstate's Alex Chambers. I'm talking with Eric Deggins, NPR's TV critic. He wrote a book about race and media about a decade ago, and it's a topic he's been thinking about for a long time. I asked him what changes he's seen in how media deals with race in his years as a critic. If you want to look at what's happening on television, particularly scripted television and entertainment, what we're seeing is more diversity. And more importantly than seeing a lot of people of color in uh, roles on television or invisible areas, what we're seeing is creative people of color being given the agency and the resources to tell their own stories their own ways. I mean, to have had a couple of years where we had three or four major series based on Native Americans, mostly written by Native Americans, created by Native Americans and indigenous people. It's pretty amazing. You know, Reservation Dogs, Dark Winds on AMC. There's, there, there was a series on Peacock that, that just ended recently. I didn't even think that would be possible when I first started covering television in 1997. So in some ways, we have a level of diversity that we've never seen before. And again, it's not just about seeing more people of color on, on camera. We, we, we are seeing people of color creating series and given the power to cast them, giving the power to write them the way that they need to be written and then getting the support. Like once the show is done and out there, you know, the, the, um, the platform that built it, you know, really making sure that people see it. And so, you know, we're looking at, I look at a show like FX's Atlanta, where the creators behind that show, Donald Glover, especially the star, they've been able to create 
a black-oriented urban comedy, but it's very surreal. It incorporates all of these touches from other kinds of films. You could see a little bit of French Impressionism in there. You could see a little bit of Ernie Kovac and <laughs> Kovacs in there. You could see a little bit of Monty Python in there. You know, these these are these are young artists who soaked up a bunch of different influences and they kind of put it all together in a show that really breaks a lot of boundaries. And you know, there was a time ten or fifteen years ago when if you were making a black comedy, you know, it had to be like Fridays. And I don't wanna I'm not dissing Fridays. I'm just saying that that was a very literal, authentic street-oriented, poor black folks in South Central, you know, kind of story. And anything other than that, the studios would say, well, it's not going to make money because white people won't be interested and black people won't be interested either. But these artists have been able to prove that that's not true. You watch a black lady sketch show, you watch Insecure, you, you watch Atlanta, you watch uh, Lovecraft Country on HBO, you know, you watch... Um, the Blackening, this film that just came out, you know, you watch the works of Jordan Peele. You know, Jordan Peele's whole career is based on taking racial issues and talking about them in a context that people don't expect, either a horror context or, you know, an alien context story context or we're talking about, you know, zombies and doppelgangers, you know, in the case of us. And 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 there's lots of artists like him who are getting a chance. Now, does that mean that it's happening as much as it should or that it's always happening the way it should happen? Uh, no. And and that means we have to keep pushing and we have to we, we can't just let these entertainment companies sit back and say, "Okay, we solved racism in scripted media." They haven't but it is a lot better now than it was when I first started covering the medium. What I don't think media is particularly good at yet is figuring out how to process white grievance and the backlash, how to identify it. And I don't want to say neutralize it, but just sort of process it in a way that isn't harmful. You know, you have these media outlets out there that are profiting off the backlash. You know, Fox News Channel is the most prominent one and the most influential one. But I would say, you know, Newsmax and Breitbart.com and radio people like Mark Levin and Sean Hannity. And, you know, there's a whole constellation of sort of conservative oriented media uh, outlets that specialize in telling white people that they should be, feel threatened by progress in inclusion and diversity and that they should push back against it. And the way to push back against it is to buy their products or listen to their show or watch their TV show and uh, vote for their political candidates and um, see the issues the way that they see them. And, uh, you know, I was really struck. I was um, in Orlando. Uh, I live in Florida now, and my home was briefly threatened by uh, Hurricane Adalia. And so I was in Orlando, and I was in a hotel lobby, and they just happened to have two TVs up, and one was showing CNN and one was showing Fox News. And CNN was covering the, the approaching hurricane, and they were also covering the shooting at the University of uh, North Carolina. Fox News was covering whether or not 
the federal government was withholding information about UFOs. They were covering whether or not Joe Biden was going to go on vacation and where he was going. They were covering diversity efforts in NASCAR and whether it was somehow degrading the sport. I mean, it was all this stuff. It wasn't just rooted in culture wars and not and backlash nonsense. It wasn't even the, like the news of the day. It wasn't, it, you know, if, if you wanted up to the minute information about the hurricane, they had a little graphic in the lower right screen Fox News did. So you could you could you could squint and see that graphic and see where the storm was. But they weren't talking about it. Now I'm sure at some point in their day they turned to talking about the hurricane. I'm not trying to say they never talked about it. But but I was sitting there for 20 minutes eating breakfast and and I saw a news channel that was covering the news and a news channel that was covering the backlash. And, you know, whenever people talk about how we can't agree on common facts, that's why there is an entirely, not entirely, but there's there's kind of a, an alternative news universe with a lot of made up facts and a lot of exaggerated facts that's mostly about justifying people's grievances. And then there's like actual news. I mean, everybody in media is facing the same. We have all these existential crises, crises going on that we're not really talking about. Like, we're not talking about the fact that there's like 30% of the audience doesn't even believe mainstream media and it's growing. What happens when we get to 45% and 50%? What, what happens? You know, man, it's like... Fascism. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. <laughs> That's what democracy, happens. My man. All right. One more question. It's a quick one. The life of the critic. Is there a lot of disappointment in it? How, oh, what's no. the balance of joy and critique? I mean, it's a, it's, it's a difficult job sometimes, but, you know, I view my, my job is to find cool stuff in media and tell people about it. Like, I feel like that's my job. So I get to have a lot of experiences that people normally pay to have or would pay to have if they could even do it. So when I was a pop music critic, you know, I was, you know, I went to the Foo Fighters first show in New York City. Um, I interviewed Bruce Springsteen twice. I hung out backstage with John Bon Jovi. As a TV journalist, you know, I visited Saturday Night Live three times. I've been to Conan O'Brien's talk show backstage. I've been to Colbert's show twice. I've been to The Daily Show twice. I hung out with um, Roy Wood Jr. when he guest hosted The Daily Show. So I get to have these experiences. I interviewed Jimmy Kimmel. You know, I hung, I hung out watching him tape a show and then hung out with him. So I get to have these experiences that people would normally love to have, you know. So it's, it's a wonderful job. It's an amazing job. And, and most of the time, it's about me trying to figure out how to find really special, interesting, transformative media and then tell people about it and or explain why something's happening. Why is this show popular now? Why is Suits suddenly popular now on Netflix? Um, why didn't something work out as well as you thought it might have? All of that stuff is like, you know, I'm a media nerd. I love I love doing it. And in fact, it was it was funny when I um, applied to be a TV critic for the first time, when I applied to be a, the TV critic for the St. Petersburg Times, one of the things they asked me during the interview was, 
do you like television? And I just thought to myself, like, who would apply to be a TV critic who doesn't like television? Like, why, like, <laughs> why would you do that to yourself? You know, but what they meant was, you know, there are some critics out there who only like like PBS or only liked a certain kind of television and, and had pretty much had contempt for the medium for the most part. And I'm not like that. You know, I, I love great television and I can appreciate it in a lot of different places. But it is the critic's job to speak the truth when no one else can or will. So sometimes it is our job to look at a show that everybody wants to love and say, the emperor has no clothes and there's something deeply wrong with this thing that everybody wants to like. And maybe it's that it's propaganda or maybe it's that there's a political message they're not acknowledging or maybe it doesn't deal with female characters particularly well or maybe it's not as diverse as you would want it to be or maybe it's too violent. You know, a lot of people love the John Wick movies. I have a real hard time watching them because of how violent they are. It never escapes me when I'm watching it, how many people this guy kills. And it doesn't matter that they're assassins. They're still people, <laughs> you know? So um, it's, it's the critic's job to sort of say the things that people won't, that, that average people might not say, that fans don't want to be said. And then for me, you know, most recently, it's been calling out comics that I love. I, I, I was a huge fan of Dave Chappelle's until recently. And, and when he did his most, uh, one of his most recent stand-up specials, filled with anti-gay and anti-trans sentiment, I had to call him out. I've been a Will Smith fan forever. When he slapped Chris Rock at the Oscars, I had to call him out. I've been a Chris Rock fan forever, and when he delivered a stand-up special that also seemed to condone uh, a lot of questionable ideas, I had to call him out. It's sad to see performers that you have admired for so long, when they get older, not get better, not get more nuanced, not get more adept, but become less tolerant and more closed-minded and more adept at convincing people to go along with terrible ideas. That's what's scary. So that's when the job is tough because you have to tell the kinds of people, normally I would just wanna be right next to them, cheering on a performer that we love, but instead I have to go to them and say, what this person has done is terrible. And I'm not gonna not say that. And, you know, a lot of fans don't wanna hear that, so. Yeah, really. <laughs> All right. This is great. Eric Tuckins, thanks so much for taking this time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Eric Deggins. He is NPR's TV critic and media analyst, and he's coming to Bloomington this week. He'll be visiting with students, and he and I will be talking on stage, live, at the Indiana University Cinema. That's on Wednesday. Okay, time for another break, and then we'll hear from Emmy Award-winning comedian Sarah Schaefer about sexism in comedy. It'll be hilarious. Welcome back to Interstates. I'm Alex Chambers. Sarah Schaefer is a comedian. But you know what? I'm going to let producer Avi Forrest bring her in. 
What is your ideal intro to your interview? Um, I would say uh, just on the surface, comedian, writer, and artist. Please welcome comedian, writer, and artist. But then I would say a, um, you know, a, a grandma with a knife. A grandma with a knife. I'm not a grandma, so maybe an auntie with a knife. An auntie with a... A great aunt with a knife. A great aunt with a knife. Anything for music? I like all kinds of stuff. I mean, like, truly, I'm all over the map. You can pick what you think. (laughs) Welcome to The Comedians, a series about comedians. What? She said she liked all kinds of music. Anyway, this time we have comedy legend Sarah Schaefer on her work, her industry, and teaching comedy. To those who don't know you, what have you done? What have you done that they would know you for? What have you done, Sarah? (laughs) Um, (laughs) uh, Well, I've done a lot of random different things over the years. I've been doing comedy for 20 years. Along the way, I guess the highlights would be, um, yes, I did win two Emmy Awards, but it wasn't for writing, technically. Uh, I worked at Late Night with Jimmy Fallon, and I ran the, what we would call, like, the digital experience, um, social media for the show. I helped uh, launch the show online. After that, I wrote for uh, uh, my first actual TV writing job was for a show called Who Wants to Be a Millionaire? (laughs) And yes, they do have writers. I wrote the questions. And after that, I had a major dream come true, which was I got my very own late night talk show called Nikki and Sarah Live. It was on MTV. Um, And then after that, I've just been doing all kinds of writing work, um, stand-up comedy on Comedy Central, Uh, I've written for award shows, game shows, docu-series, like anything you can name, I've written for it. And, um, and I've written a book. Like, I've really gone everywhere with this career. There's a lot of things I still want to do, but I feel very, um, very lucky to have gotten a lot of my dreams come true. Yeah, and after, like, two decades your career arguably like peaks here with like a an interview at an indiana (laughs) radio station it's nothing down it's nothing but downhill from here i'm really trying to savor this moment (laughs) that's why i got really dressed up for the interview as you can see (laughs) yeah yeah to those who don't know you how would you describe your brand of comedy it took me a long time to be able to answer this question, um, but now I think I have <laughs> have a good uh, good sense Last of it. Week, a woman sued Panera Bread for contracting E. coli from their romaine lettuce. At this very moment, <laughs> when I read this, I was sitting in a Panera, <laughs> eating a salad filled with romaine lettuce. And again, As I mentioned, I've done went, so many different things, but not about I would Panera. say that I am I put smart. The phone down and my comedy is smart. I don't know if salad. I'm smart, but my comedy tries to be smart. What happened? What I was like, I finished it. I was like, what in the, 
Oh, no. I'm a little bit of a storyteller, very self-deprecating. I love satire and commentary on the world around us. I was confronted with factual information, but because it conflicted with the narrative that I needed to be true, which was that this was my annual salad, pointing out, you know, the unfair and the absurd, but through the lens of, well, I'm, I'm just as flawed as anyone else, um, with always that self-awareness coming through that um, I never want to sound like I am the authority on everything perfect. You know, I think some comedians do project that, like, I'm the one that knows what's good, what's bad, what's right, what's wrong, and you have to listen to me. And I think I take a little bit of a different tack, which is, I know what's right, what's wrong, but also I'm wrong and I'm bad and, well, maybe no one knows anything. Like That's sort of like a, a common theme in what I talk about. You talked a little bit earlier about your experiences um, with, with sexism in the industry, mm-hmm. if that's accurate. You know, sometimes I'll talk to comedians, male comedian peers of mine, friends of mine, and they're well-meaning. They're not like bad guys or anything, but they just won't sort of really get the sort of day-to-day like weirdness of being a woman in this business still. I mean, it's way better than it was when I started. I will give it that. I mean, it's really come a long way, but it's still nagging. So I'll have friends, I'll be like, you know, I'll be like, do you know what it's like to be told that like fundamentally as a woman, you just aren't funny? And they're like, people aren't still saying that. And I'm like, yes, they are. I mean, they say it directly or indirectly all the time on Twitter. And you see it, you know, just spend a little bit of time on Twitter or on, on the YouTube comments or TikTok comments on any woman's stand-up, and you're going to find a lot of people just straight up going, women aren't funny, or there's only a couple funny women, she's not one of them. And that is a persistent comment that is made. Um, yeah, those people are trolls, ignore the trolls, but it it plays out in ways subtle ways. And again, it's getting better. But when I started out, there was a lot of stuff where it was just fundamentally, you just felt, oh, I don't belong here because I'm a woman. I'm being not being taken as seriously and I'm not being treated like I actually have skills or talent the way that the other guys do. And so I think a lot of women comedians navigate that in different ways. In my generation, I think, and especially before me, you know, there were so few of us that like, we are we saw each other as competition and like and distrusted other female comedians but what i've seen happen over the past 10 years is a great unification of female comedians not all but most are like we actually need to look out for each other cuz now we're wise to it and it's like we're we're we we can't let these fuckers, <laughs> you know we can't let these guys do this to us anymore and we have to take back cuz they're helping each other the male comedians are helping each other. We need to help each other instead of acting like lone wolves because now there's way more of us and we aren't lone wolves and we're more powerful together. And so that's been a very positive um, development I've noticed. And I, most of my closest friends are female comedians and I treasure them so much. And, you know, I did my show in New York um, a few weeks ago and in the audience was like, a ton of female comedians that I had started out with. And it made me really emotional by the end of the show. I like was had tears in my eyes because I was just like, these people know, not only do they know exactly what I'm talking about, but they were like with me 
when I started and they know how hard I've worked to get to this point and what I've put into this show. And it was just really an amazing experience. What is it like for you in 2023 as a female stand-up comedian? Um, well, you know, uh, one of the things we joke about is uh, getting that question is one of the elements. <laughs> um, and I hope that when you do your next interview with a male comedian, you will say to him, what is being a male comedian like in 2023? <laughs> and see what they say. <laughs> In fact, I'll take a quick moment to just plug the book of my friend Jenna Friedman, a very funny, very smart comedian who just put a book out called Not Funny. And there's a lot of stuff in there about being a woman comic. And she has a whole chapter where she interviews a bunch of famous male comedians and asks them all the questions that women comedians get. And their reaction is so funny. And like, it's that's just, that's the easy one. But there's a lot that are really crazy. And it's like Jon Stewart, um... Uh, Jim Gaffigan, Fred Armisen, she got all these guys to answer the questions. It's a very satisfying chapter as a female comedian, but I recommend reading that. But I will answer your question in sincerity. Um, I do think that, um, like I said, we're in a new era of women comics. Um, I do think, you know, I think on one hand, we're more powerful and more visible than we've ever been. We're more respected. We're more accepted. You do hear less of the women aren't funny comment. A lot of some of the old ways I feel like don't exist. Like, for instance, when I started out, there would be maybe one or two women on a lineup at a comedy show. Now it'll be half women. It'll be all women. And they won't say anything. Like, it used to be like if there was more than two women, they go, what is this, ladies' night? Huh, another lady coming to the stage. They'd like, make a big deal about it. Um, they'd be like, it's weird. Nobody wants this. Ah, uh, sorry. Um, now that's very different. It's, 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 people don't bat an eye if the lineup is mostly women. Like, no one's like, ooh, weird. No, you know, what are all the ladies doing here? Like, it's not like that anymore, at least in the good places. But I will also say that one of the things that I've noticed from a lot of my um, fellow female comics is we're very tired and really disillusioned after the sort of aftermath of the initial Me Too movement. And a lot of, not a lot, but like a few, well, almost all of them, all of the male comedians who have been quote unquote canceled for being criminals or predators, uh, abusive in some way. They seem to be continuing on as if nothing had happened. And, you know, that's a really complex conversation, like, you know, about, well, what should happen to somebody, punishment fitting the crime. And, and that's a really long conversation. But what I feel is, uh, and what a lot of my friends feel is complete and total disillusionment going, what difference did it make? You know, and, and cause nobody cares, you know, like it's not that I want um, a canceled sex criminal sex pest male comic to never see the light of day or to never speak again or never. And it depends on if they're a criminal and they like actually have committed a lot of crimes. I would prefer there that they go through what we have right now, which is a criminal justice system. Like that's the, the only option we have in some cases, um, if we can't, you know, socially cancel them and they belong in jail, they belong in jail, you know. Um, but 
for those other cases where it's like, you know, more of harassment or um, those gray area cases where someone has been a predator and, a, and abusive to women in this business, and they're just sort of continuing on, there's two parts of it. One is it's that the conditions haven't changed enough. I think that's what we're frustrated by is like, I'm still vulnerable to going to a club and being on a lineup with a guy that everyone knows is a rapist and no one cares. And I have to face that when I go and be on a show with that person. And it, it's that feeling of, oh, you guys don't, when I say you guys, I mean other comedians, bookers, the gatekeepers. It's like, oh, wow, you don't care about us at all and our safety or the other workers here safety. The, you know, and um, that has been really distressing um, to experience. And so I think a lot of us are like, you know, I talk a little bit about this topic in my show and I got critique from a critic um, in Australia when I did the show there who said, who kind of suggested I didn't go far enough, but like I didn't name names. I didn't bring out, you know, the abuse I've experienced or that I've witnessed to the, to the light enough. And I thought that was one, don't tell me, (laughs) don't tell me how to express myself with that stuff. But also I felt very frustrated um, by the, by that idea, because one of the, you know, I, I've experienced things by a guy that, um, has done a lot of stuff to women, um, inappropriate touching and things like that in green rooms. And we tried to like take him down on Twitter a few years ago, but he's not quite famous enough for it to hit. And so it did nothing. <laughs> like we were like, oh, we finally all said our piece about him. And it did nothing. No one cared. It, it literally just stayed with us. And like he just continued on as if nothing happened. And that was just, there's a feeling of disillusionment with that of like, what power do we have? And um, you know, there's still a lot of, uh, guys who are just sort of getting away with stuff. And, um, I don't know the, I don't know where to go with that. You know, I don't know where it goes from here, but that's to to answer your question. There's a lot of positive things about being a female comedian right now, but there's also been some, some exhausting, um, developments over the past few years. Uh, is it hard to, take all of that and turn that into comedy or just see it in a different way? <laughs> Honestly, it's been like the work of a lifetime because I, you know, there was a while where I was like, com- not complaining, but I would like voice my mind on Twitter or other social media and about this stuff. And I didn't find that to be a very satisfying experience because I would get a lot of harassment for saying things and it wasn't my art form, I was just like yapping and like, and I should be able to speak wherever I want, but it wasn't giving me the feeling I wanted or the result. I didn't feel like it made a difference for me personally. And it was like, I call it like impotent rage. Like it just went in, you know, Twitter is built to be that way. Just like lots of little flare ups of inflammatory arguments and then they're gone in the wind. And what did we do here today? None of us got paid to do this. And, you know, And so I've been working for a long time trying to figure out how can I channel this into a creative thing. And it kind of started with these little videos I was making, audio sketches. And I was scared to put those things out there, but they were comedy sketches I wrote about these topics. And they hit so well. And they didn't get that kind of feedback. And it felt more like, oh, this really worked. I was funny and I expressed myself and I commented on something all in one thing. And that felt very satisfying. And people 
really responded to it in a much stronger way than me just saying the same point flat out. And so that's where all of this kind of came from, of me giving myself permission to do comedy about these things. And I felt I was worried at first it was too navel-gazy, uh, too inside. But what I found is that, that all the things I'm talking about are very relatable. And there is a place for this work where I'm doing comedy about comedy. Um I make sure to make it more than that. And it's like I do regular jokes throughout my show, but it's been really awesome to like say something, but say it in a really creative, funny way. What's something that you're afraid to be asked? The kind of question I fear would be like, Sarah, do you know what everyone's saying about you? (laughs) And then they tell you, you know, like I would be like, no, and I don't want to know, you know, or something like that. I don't know. It just sounds like I feel like I have anxiety. That just sounds like anxiety. Yeah, it is. Oh, I've got anxiety. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Like, and I mean, you know, I'm, I'm sure there's a clever answer to that question. Like, uh, what's a question you fear? And it's like, uh, you know, uh, like, <laughs> like, is your is your name Sarah Schaefer? Uh, is your husband Scott Moran? And it's a cop standing at your door. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? And it's like, yes. And they're like, ma'am, we have some bad news. There's probably that kind of thing. But in general, it's probing questions that would get me into trouble are the ones that I fear, right? Yeah, it's like, uh, what are you afraid to be asked? Is this, is this yours, ma'am? We found yeah, this, right. yeah, that found kind this of thing. in your coat. And it's a gun. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Thank you so much. It was amazing talking to you. Oh, it's thank like, you. It's like I hope I wasn't God. too random. <laughs> oh, please. Comedian Sarah Schaefer, talking with producer Avi Forrest. Schaefer is supporting the writer's strike, where she recently warned that the strikers would yell until they get hoarse. So, heads up. All right, that's it for Interstates. I'm your host, Alex Chambers, coming to you from the studios of WFIU Bloomington. If you have a story for us, or you've got some sound we should hear, let us know at wfiu.org interstates. And if you like the show, you can rate and review us on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen. And what's even more fun than that, although I don't know, that sounds pretty fun, but even more fun is telling a friend. Okay, we've got your quick moment of slow radio coming up. But first, the credits. Interstates is produced and edited by me, Alex Chambers, with support from Violet Barron, Aabon Binder, Jillian Blackburn, Mark Chilla, Avi Forrest, Luann Johnson, Sam Schemenauer, Jay Upshaw, Peyton Whaley, and Kate Young. Our executive producer is Eric Bolstridge. Extra thanks this week to Avi Forrest for production help on the Eric Deggins interview. Our theme song is by Amy Olsner and Justin Vollmer, and we have additional music from the artists at Universal Production Music. Special thanks this week to Eric Deggins and Sarah Schaefer. All right, time for some found sound. You could probably figure out what that was. It was basketball. Thanks to Patsy Ron for that recording. Until next week, I'm Alex Chambers. Thanks, as always, for listening. Bye.